You're listening to That'll Preach. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Brian. I'm here with my co-host, Paul, and uh, we're going to be continuing our series on Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, a classic Christian work by the big man himself, the 300-pound brilliant genius. Literally, literally the big man. Paul, don't don't talk until I've introduced you properly. Paul, you keep interrupting my intro. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, Paul, how are you doing? Doing great. I'm excited to see you. (laughs) You just make everything so weird. Anyway, I'm excited to see you too, Paul, I guess. But uh, last week we talked about uh, Chesterton and his, uh, his wit and his charm and also his weight. And we got tons of angry emails about how offensive we were. So we have to keep this one kosher. Uh, I'm, I'm joking. We, no, nobody emails us. But uh, we looked at the first chapter of Orthodoxy, and uh, it was pretty refreshing. But uh, this is basically a bunch of responses from Chesterton to some of his critics who, you know, want him to make a case for Christianity, essentially, a case for Orthodoxy. And uh, in his unforgettable prose and wit and style, he has some very colorful ways of laying forth a vision of the Christian life centered around beauty and some just straight up common sense and all that stuff. But uh, what, have, what have you thought so far as you've been reading or rather rereading Orthodoxy? I am, I'm constantly taken aback by how like beautiful and punchy his writing is uh, in a way that I think I'm just trying to compare him back to Lewis. Chesterton is a lot more spicy. I think we talked about this right before. Like he's just got spicy takes and he's not afraid to, to use colorful language. Um, he's also a little bit more like esoteric and a little bit more difficult to understand. Like his, the meaning of his words are not always super clear. And so he makes these points like the scientist is like the madman or the lunatic. And you're like, I don't know, it takes a few pages to understand what he's trying to say. It feels but a little self-indulgent sometimes. It feels a, a little, little like we get yeah. it. You can turn a phrase yeah. You know, um, but it is, I mean, there's a reason why it's, it's a beloved, you know, people have been reading it for 150 years. The prose is beautiful, a little bit difficult to, to parse through sometimes, but this is why I have you as a friend to, to explain this chapter to me. Oh, well, I'm, I might let you down because some of the stuff I'm like, that sounds smart and that sounds good. It's probably true. You know, <laughs> maybe that's what he, maybe, maybe that's what he's relying on. But um, we have, we're going to look at chapter two, the maniac which is a, I mean, all the titles in Orthodoxy are provocative. I mean, we have The Maniac, the next chapter is called The Suicide of Thought, then The Ethics of Elfland, the, you know, The Paradoxes of Christianity, The Romance of Orthodoxy, all this kind of, uh, you know, romantic, fluffy language. But I thought we could talk about some interesting quotes that come from the second chapter about The Maniac. But, I mean, the, the, the main idea, why, I mean, why does he call it The Maniac? What would you be your take? Why does he call the second chapter the maniac? I think he's trying to say that the um, the naturalist atheist mindset uh, is very similar to like a maniacal, insane mindset. So there's a lot in common between the atheist naturalist who thinks he can reduce everything about the world um, and encapsulate it in just like a very nice, neat and tidy theory and the madman who does that. So there's something in common between atheism as a worldview and insanity. 
that's sort of my my take. When you say naturalism, you're talking about materialism, or how would you yeah. explain naturalism to a dumb person the- like me? <laughs> You're not dumb, Ryan. You were. Oh, thank you. I was just fishing for friends. I, I was fishing for that compliment, and <laughs> and, and I, totally I, I got you hook, line, and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, and go ahead. Foiled again. How would you explain uh, it to the simpletons out there? Naturalism is the view that everything is time, space, matter, and energy. We can quantify everything in our scientific theories, and the only sort of knowledge that we can access is through the scientific method, and only scientific truths are truths. There's no supernatural. It's all neat and tidy. In principle, we will have all the knowledge ever using our test tubes and microscopes and scientific apparatuses. And Chesterton is saying the people who adopt that mindset, who think they're so rational, are actually the most irrational or they're the maniacs and they think themselves geniuses. Yeah, that's at least how I read it. And there's a couple of quotes, I think, that really make that point pretty profoundly. But what... um, I was curious to see what your take was. Well, you I can enlighten I, me on. <laughs> I mean, I, I was reading, I have this one quote highlighted where, where he tells you, um, the men who really believe in themselves are all in lunatic asylums. Um, and I think he's, you know, he's obviously being provocative, but he's saying that whenever you have this atheistic, naturalistic view, the one thing you have absolute confidence in is in your own ability to reason and interpret the world. And that that is an unquestioned presupposition that we kind of have. And, uh, or rather we think that our mind can even understand the world exhaustively or that if we can't see a way for there to be a supernatural, then that means a supernatural can't exist or something like that. And he, I think he's just making the point that you know, the people who are most confident in their own abilities are insane people in the insane asylums. Mm. In, in, in a sense, all they care about is what they think, you know, or, or a person who's insane, his, he, he is absolutely committed to his view of reality, right? And that the more people who aren't committed just sort of prove his point, you know, that kind of mm. thing, that, that pure belief in your own self, pure self-confidence belongs to geniuses and to people who are insane. So I, I think that's kind of uh, where I'm where I'm looking at it. Um, yeah, he, I mean, he he basically compares the rationalist naturalist to a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> yeah, um, like there's there's a lot of parallels because he says uh, in the same way that the madman's explanation is always complete, um, or so to speak, the insane explanation, if not conclusive, is at least unanswerable. Um, so if a man says that men have a conspiracy against him, you cannot dispute it, right? There's a sense in which like when someone gives you a conspiracy theory, whatever evidence you give them back, they'll always, they'll take whatever evidence you give them as, as more evidence that their theory is correct. Um, so the, the guy who says, I'm the King of England. And then you tell him, actually, no, the King of England is like over there. He'd be like, yeah, duh. He's the guy who's trying to get everyone to think that I'm not the King of England, right? And so you can always like reinterpret the evidence. And so the conspiracy theorist is doing something uh, bizarre, like logically, irrationally. And he thinks that the atheist is doing something similar there. Like it doesn't matter what evidence you give him because he's so sure of his take and hold on the world. All the evidence you give him will be subsumed under his current atheistic theory. And so the problem is that they're beginning from a false first principle. Like the, the problem is much further back 
upstream. Like you have to fix the first principles, the worldview, and then look at the evidence. You can't have this naturalistic um, paradigm or set of assumptions and then look at the evidence objectively and think that that's going to be compelling one way or the other. So there's something, something kind of like emotional or irrational about a non-theistic worldview. He has this phrase where he says, uh, actors who can't act believe in themselves and debtors who won't pay. I think what he is saying is that to be a good actor, you have to not assume your own perspective, but adopt the perspective of another, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And then debtors who won't pay, they believe themselves. They believe they don't have that. I don't actually owe you money. And I have perfect confidence in myself. It's like, well, in that case, the more confident you are, the more wrong you are, right? Um, so he says, it would be much truer to say that a man will certainly fail because he believes in himself. Complete self-confidence is not merely a sin. Complete self-confidence is a weakness. Mm. And I was talking about complete self-confidence, not self-confidence in general. I mean, obviously, if you if you take any position, you have confidence in that position. Otherwise, you wouldn't take it. But I think what he's talking about is, and later he talks about it being like uh, a, a narrow circle, like a very... Uh, rigid kind of perspective on the world that is rooted in a kind of hubris. You know, um, he talks about how uh, certain religious leaders in London, not mere materialists, or what, rather, actually, let me, let me back up. Um, he, he essentially says that one of the big signs of insanity is people denying sin, mm. that sin exists. Yeah. And he has, this is one of his most famous lines, I think, from the book. He says, uh, if it be true, as it certainly is, that a man can feel exquisite happiness in skinning a cat, then the religious philosopher can only draw one of two deductions. He must either deny the existence of God, as all atheists do, or he must deny the present union between God and man, as all Christians do. The new theologians seem to think it a highly rationalistic solution to deny the cat. <laughs> And I love that. He's basically saying, if you're an atheist, I mean, he's actually going beyond atheism. He's talking about liberal Christians, mm -hmm. right? And he says, if you are an atheist and you see a guy skinning a cat alive and he's happy, you're going to be like, well, clearly there's no God. How could that evil exist? There's no God. Okay, that's what an atheist says. Mm -hmm. A Christian goes, no, what explains that is that there is a God, but man is sinful. That's how depraved we are, that someone can find joy out of skinning a cat. But he says, the liberal theologian, says that there actually is no cat. There right. is no, there's no sin. There's no problem at all. Nothing's actually really happening. Something mm -hmm. like that. Or, or they're calling it, you know. And uh, and he talks about how sin is really one of the most easily defendable of the Christian doctrines. And yet that's the one that the liberal Christians in his, in, in his time are doing their, their best to try to deny. Yeah, I mean, he he says later on that uh, original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine, right? And so that it's a, it's almost it's insane to deny human fallenness or evil in the world or sin. Which he says uh, right before that quote that you read, actually, he says the strongest saints and the strongest skeptics all took evil as their starting point of argument. So for most of human history, it was it was a given data point, and all the theories and worldviews and philosophical frameworks are built around trying to figure out this problem. Like evil exists, what do we do with it? And you could go the Epicurean or Humean or 
skeptical route and say, well, the evil exists, therefore God doesn't exist. Or you can go the Christian route and say, evil exists, therefore there's a severance between God and man. But he finds this new answer really bizarre that like liberal, the liberal minded elite educated person is going to say, well, actually, no, let's just, there is no such thing as sin. There is no such thing as evil. It's just an illusion. And it's that, that theme again of like refusing to acknowledge that which is right in front of you. It's kind of like an insanity. It's kind of a lunacy. Um, and it's not something we should take seriously. So, so someone who wants to um, understand all of reality if they just get rid of the parts that they don't understand and say, well, look, I've grasped all of reality. Chesterton's saying, no, you haven't. You've you've ignored the really difficult parts. And when you say you've grasped reality, all you're saying is, yeah, the stuff that I can encapsulate in my theories, that's what is really, that's what reality really is. And all the stuff that's mysterious or metaphysical that I can't give an explanation for, I'm just gonna pretend like it doesn't exist that's a conspiracy theory. Like there you're just picking and choosing and cherry picking the evidence that you want to respond to. Well, he has a great line where he says, in short, oddities only strike ordinary people. Oddities do not strike odd people. If you're odd, you think you're normal. It's only when you're normal that you recognize what's odd. And I think with the conspiracy theory thing, it's it's sort of like the person who's wrapped up in a conspiracy theory or the atheist naturalist who's wrapped up in their ideas, they are very skeptical and precise and you know studying every aspect except for themselves mm. right the odd person is dis the, the 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 skeptical person is skeptical of everybody else except for their own skepticism you know the conspiracy theorist is skeptical of everybody else except for their own judgment yeah he, you can I, I can trust no one except myself and then you wonder well maybe you should you know, question whether you should in fact trust yourself. And uh, I think that, that that's an interesting thing. He actually says, a man who thinks himself a chicken is to himself as ordinary as a chicken. <laughs> and then he says that uh, this is why ordinary people have a much more exciting time while odd people are always complaining of the dullness of life. And he said, he makes, I, I want to know what you think about this. He says that the old fairy tales make the hero a normal human boy. Mm. It is his adventures that are startling. They startle him because he is normal. But in the modern psychological novel, the hero is abnormal. The center is not central. I love that. And that basically sums up like the, the huge flaw with all of the Marvel movies. <laughs> like if you have a character that's so souped up and abnormal, it's difficult to it's difficult to get invested in them. Like those are not the best stories. The best stories are the ones where the, the main protagonist is normal, is just like one of us and has to undergo difficulties and trials and like has a really interesting character arc. And sure, there's like, it's fun to watch a Marvel movie and Captain America is, you know, there's a sense of patriotism there without being too crazy. And I don't know, there's, there's something appealing about it, but it's not, it's not a great story. We all like, there's a, there's a formula to the Marvel plot that Disney has found and is monetizing, you know, the heck out of, but yeah, the, the best stories are the ones where there's a normal character. And Look, not, they, not everything <laughs> can be the Fast and Furious franchise, Paul. All right, I'm tired of you comparing everything to Fast and Furious. I know that's the gold standard in your mind. Family, it's all about family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it, right. It, and people don't know this, but you have that tattooed on your forehead. That's right. Yeah. In comic, I, in Comic Sans, that's the. I, 
It's like <laughs> grotesque, just all what over your I face. What if like Vin Diesel for upcoming Halloween and just like shaved my head and got a bunch of tattoos and got super shredded? That would be, I, I would actually love to see that. That'd be all hilarious right. if you're like, I'm in the best shape of my life. All it took was me <laughs> promising on a podcast that I would be Vin Diesel for Halloween. That's all uh, it took. I could do now, it. Let's do it. I'm trying to imagine you as Vin Diesel now and, uh, and it works. So and you it should works. do it. Yeah, I know. I'm balding. Um, well, but yeah, uh, yeah. Imagination does not breed insanity. Exactly what does breed insanity is reason. Poets do not go mad, but chess players do. Mathematicians go mad and cashiers, but creative artists very seldom. I'm kind of like, eh, are you sure? There's a lot of crazy creatives out there. So I, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm not 100% sure that that's the well, case. I mean, to be charitable, I think what he's trying to say is that people who are obsessed about trying to figure everything out, yeah. those are the ones who go crazy. But if sure. you're more okay with mystery and you have like you're okay with lack of closure about the world. You're just like the world is bigger than anything I can produce or think or you're like there's a, a sense of being able to be content in that. But the the furious physicist who like wants to figure out the theory of everything, who's just like got walls upon walls of like chalkboard scribbles and mm-hmm. like you know you picture that sort of like the MIT professor like that's that's the stuff that drives you crazy. It's not. It's not imagination and art and like being okay with the unknown. So this is, Chesterton's actually, for everything in me that like grates against his, his critique of the logician as a philosopher, I think he has a point. Like it, the point is we need to be okay with mystery and we need to be okay with not being able to exhaust everything in the world. We're not going to have a comprehensive theory. It's not going to be super neat and tidy. Um, if you have a view where miracles happen, then you get like, what explains the miracles? How do they come about? Why does God do miracles here and not there? And it's just, there's no good one single answer to label and get all of that, um, accounted for. But the person who wants that and obsesses over that, they're the ones who are going to lose sleep and eventually be driven to lunacy. And so Justin's call is a call for being okay with lack of closure, being okay with the world being bigger than what we can account for. And there's a kind of like humility and contentedness that's good and, and, and to be striven for there. I think people will criticize this though with sort of a God of the, God of the gaps theory. The idea that we can't explain it, so we just put God in the gap of our understanding. God just fills the gap. And I think the reason his book is called Orthodoxy is he's saying, well, no, it's not that you, on the one hand, you think that you can figure everything out down to the decimal point. On the other hand, it's not saying that uh, you just empty your mind and just put everything under mystery and just evade the question. So evade actually searching things out and thinking about it and just being like, let's just, you know, let's just be mystical and, and there's some weird force out there, whatever. So I think that that's, that's the hesitation when we go poetry over logic. It's just like, oh, you mean not thinking serious about anything? over thinking seriously. No, I think that the the middle ground or what the solution he gives is orthodoxy. He's going, we can't figure it all out. There are things beyond our comprehension, but it doesn't mean we just open up our brains and let them fall out and we don't think anything at all. We have a content of knowledge that can't be discovered on our own power, but is given to us graciously and it's called revelation. 
It's called God speaking in the incarnation in Jesus Christ. It's the scriptures themselves. So there's positive content that's revelatory. So we're not just saying anything goes. We're saying, no, we need something outside of us to communicate to us those things that we can't grasp by our own natural faculties. And that's what I really like about where he's going. And in that sense, he goes, the poet is at least open to hearing that voice, mm-hmm. to hearing the scriptures. You have to first you, you, you have to first recognize that you can't figure it all out before God's revelation becomes something that you need, that you realize is important. Does he talk about revelation specifically in this chapter? Do he doesn't in this chapter. But I yeah. think when he, I, but I think I, maybe, I, I think that's what he means by orthodoxy. I mean, in yeah. his case, maybe he means the Catholic dog, whatever, but just the, the incarnation itself is a revelation. The incarnation itself is the divine condescending to humans to make a truth known that they couldn't otherwise know. Mm-hmm. To know God in a way that is only possible if God graciously stoops down to us. And that's, and Jesus Christ is the heart of, of orthodoxy. Um, yeah, I mean, I there. I think that is ultimately where he's trying to go. Part of me thinks he's doing something a little bit more radical, though. I think he does want to say that of the two extremes, the rational logician and the mystical poet, where like you know, mystical poet just is totally okay with all the mysteries and it's all just like flowers, rainbows, dancing. Like he said, we should err in that direction over the logician direction. Like yeah, both, those that. are maybe yeah. not ideal, but like one is closer to the truth. Because later on, he does say, "Well, one is Mormon, open to the truth. One is at least open, right? Yeah, and I, to the I limits that, of their knowledge. You have to like find the end of yourself, right? You know. So that instinct, he's. I think he's trying to say that instinct is a healthy one to cultivate, um, because he does say later, the morbid logician seeks to make everything lucid. And succeeds in making everything mysterious, whereas the mystic allows one thing to be mysterious and everything else becomes lucid. It's a great line. It's a beautiful line. So the logician tries to encapsulate everything and make it make sense. And in doing so, he makes everything mysterious because his theory is not accounting for lots of stuff and he just chooses to ignore stuff he doesn't like. But the mystic, by allowing one thing to be mysterious, and maybe here he's talking about the Christian and the incarnation, like the one thing that's mysterious through that, everything else becomes lucid and clear. And so, yeah, it, it, it's a defensive, um, it's a defensive mystery. And I think, I think it is, there's a little bit more radical of a dimension to it, but it's not outside of Christianity. It's just, it's a radical way of thinking about the relationship between logic and poetry or mystery or imagination, which as a philosopher, I'm deeply, I know, I'm just with, thinking, but it's, this is, yeah. it's Chesterton. <laughs> I mean, what, what makes you uncomfortable about that type of talking when people, I mean, it's like in vogue today to emphasize like a vague spirituality or poetry or art and the things that make philosophers vomit in their mouths, you know, (laughs) why, what, what, what is the danger you see with this? Maybe, and maybe it's this, like all that stuff, I think Chesterton would equally condemn too. Like he was talking about when he talks about the, the mystic, he's talking about the person who's, um, who contemplates and who's reading like old books and who's, uh, you know, taken by the classics and Dickens yeah. and even like Confucian philosophers and, and people who are, who are actually trying to grapple with reality 
and articulating stories that move our imagination in positive ways. This isn't just, let's just all sit around with a bong and like sing Kumbaya. That's not the sort of mysticism that Chesterton is. You just described last weekend, didn't you, Paul? You out in Texas, you just like, like, let's just hypothetically imagine, yeah. It's legal in Florida. It's not legal in Texas. So maybe maybe that was Brian's last week. Come on over. Anyway. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, I I think that's the critique. So he's not not affirming sort of kumbaya 420 type mysticism. He's affirming uh, being moved by like true fairy stories that tell us about good and evil and a childlikeness, which is going to come up later in orthodoxy, like the child who sees wonder in everything in the world versus the scientist who tries to collapse and reduce everything to molecules and theories. And I think those are the two uh, extremes of the spectrum. And he's telling us we need to be more like the child or the poet or the artist who's making beautiful things and who sees nature as full of wonder that can't be tamed versus the morbid logician who's trying to draw a circle around reality. And in doing so, the circle ends up being really, really, really small. The poet only desires exaltation and expansion, a world to stretch himself in. The poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head, and it is his head that splits. <laughs> so and that's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah. The, the poet is acknowledging his finitude, that he can't grasp it all. And that's what motivates his creativity and the way he uses language. He's just trying to kind of dip into this greater thing that he knows is there, but he can't fully articulate or grasp. It's the logician who tries to pack everything into his own head, to whittle everything down into equations and words and all these types of things. And in doing so, his head splits. He can't actually do it. He reaches the, he actually has to reduce everything to his level, or he tries to pack it into his head and it breaks him apart. And uh, that, that's a great, um, a great way, a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, I also love after having done a whole series on Revelation, um, he says that uh, St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision. Talking about Revelation. Mm-hmm. He saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. <laughs> the, the general fact is simple. Poetry is sane because it floats easily in an infinite sea. Reason seeks to cross the infinite sea and so make it finite. And it is true because if you look at Revelation, most people take it as this like map of future events or they try to whittle it down to a timeline. But when you really start to read it, and I think like Peter Lighthart's commentary is really helpful on this, there's a poetry to it. It's meant to engage your imagination. It's got its own narrative and its themes and its reversals and it's all this stuff. It's a narrative that's unfolding that's meant to draw you in. And if you, sometimes commentators are, are, are trying to be too exacting with every single one of the symbols and they miss what's actually happening. It's almost like you're really focused on the actual notes without ever listening to the song being played, the orchestra playing the song or the band playing the song. You're just focused on the tempo, the beats, the notes, the theory, and you don't realize this is something that's meant to lift you beyond what's being written Mm. and to lift up your minds and your eyes to see truth in a a, a new way. There's something like that. And And there's a a sense in which the the logician is is doing something unnatural. So here we get the tie-in again with the madman and the the lunatic. The logician is not doing something organic. It's not intuitive. It's it's going beyond common sense. Mm -hmm. And this comes up a lot in this chapter where Chesterton wants to give a defense of common sense as like actually leading us to truth. So he says, the man who can't believe his senses 
and the man who cannot believe anything else are both insane. Um, they have both locked themselves up in two boxes, painted inside with the sun and the stars. They're both unable to get out. Um, and so God has like given us all of this data immediately accessible to us. And on the one hand, you can deny your common sense. Or on the one hand, you can say common sense envelops everything. And both are errors. Both don't get you everything. Right. Both basically paint, uh, give you a smaller version of reality. It's that sort of boxing yourself in. But he does want to vindicate common sense. It's a good place to start, but we shouldn't say that common sense gives us everything that we need. Neither is it um, neither is it the sort of thing that we should just get over and do away with because we've got science now. So there's a sort of tension there. But he does want to defend like the ordinary uh, human impulse and ability to know the world is a healthy one. Just know that it's not going to give us full closure. And if you say... You know, if God's like, well, here I've revealed myself by sending my son in the flesh. I've revealed myself by his resurrection. He go, well, I don't think that God can dwell in the flesh and I don't think the resurrection is going to happen. Then that's what you're doing. You're painting your own world in which those things can happen and locking yourself in it. And you're, and you're never questioning why do you think those things can't happen, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he says that uh, the madman is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman, the madman is the man who has lost everything except his reason. Mm. He's lost his wonder. He's he has no humility. He thinks they can he can whittle everything down to size and into his own into his own mind. Mm. Uh, I have to get to this one quote though. Perhaps the strongest case of all is this: that only one great English poet went mad, Cowper, and he was definitely driven mad by logic, by the ugly and alien logic of predestination. So <laughs> Chesterton does not like John yeah. Calvin. He does not like Reformed theology. Yeah. Cowper, I think he was, uh, I know he wrote, he, he, I think he committed suicide. I mean, I, I think that's what he was. He, he's just a very I'm sad sure. guy. Yeah. And, uh, and Chesterton seems to say, well, it was the Calvinism that did him in. So, you know, maybe Chesterton in this, in this case is, um, being the madman, but oh yeah, he says, oh man, he says this, uh, he was damned by John Calvin. <laughs> there you go. What do yep. you think about that, Paul? I mean, he, what's our boy Chesterton doing? I mean, he's definitely, he's responding to uh, the physicists in the late 19th, early 20th centuries who were saying, there is no such thing as free will because we have physical accounts of what goes on in the body or in the world. And I think he's trying to defend human responsibility and a sense of human agency. I think he might go a little bit too far, or maybe he's, he's not being as, as nuanced enough in, in how he's handling the concepts. And we um, are robots though. So <laughs> that's right. Yeah. As Actually, we're, we're all, we're all puppets with uh, puppets. sort of strings being pulled by God. That's right. On, we're on all AI. View. That's right. <laughs> Although I mean, soon robots are going to have free will. So that argument won't stand anymore. Think about that. Right. Yeah, like, oh, we think we're all so robots. Smart. It's like, yeah, robots have free will now. So <laughs> have you seen this movement with the AI developers who are trying to do everything in their power to promote AI research? Because this is the kicker. They think AI is going to happen. It's just a matter of time. And AI is going to become smart enough that they're going to invent time travel. And then AI is going to come back in time and torture and kill everyone who tried to put a stop to AI research. And so because of like concerns about what future AI are going to do in building a time machine to come to the past, 
It's like it's a serious thing. It's I want like to I want to splice this. this clip of you with what you said earlier about conspiracy theorists and like <laughs> madmen. I'm gonna you lose know. my job. I know, I know. People don't know this, but you're actually talking to me from a cell <laughs> in an insane asylum. Your mic isn't even hooked up to anything, and I'm not even real. I'm a projection of your imagination. And so I'm all those a bathrobe, <laughs> like Why? I usually do, because you always say that. You, you know, of all the things Paul's I said, one of them is actually true, and the true part is Paul <laughs> is just wearing a bathrobe right now. That's the weird thing. Um, one last thing, I think this is actually Chesterton flirting with the idea of total depravity. He says a man cannot think himself out of mental evil, for it is actually the organ of thought that has become diseased ungovernable and as it were independent he could only be saved by will or faith which depending on how you define mm. will we could agree with but it is funny where he's saying the, the mind is diseased ungovernable messed up you know and yet his will on his vision can can somehow you can will your way out of it and well, with uh, will i think he like something has to break from the outside in right and i think that, yeah. right in a qualified that's, that's sense the point. yeah but i think that you know, a Calvinist could read that and be, say, give a hearty amen. Yeah. And uh, Chesterton would just whack you with a stick or tackle you with all 300 pounds of him <laughs> and destroy you. What a hilarious image. But uh, yeah, it's a great chapter. If you guys get a chance to read it, it's, I mean, we, we didn't even like get through half the stuff that he has just in this chapter. Um, and this is a, a, but it's a really, I think, enjoyable read. It's a fun read. And uh, but not necessarily a quick read. He's going to make you think. But make sure you pick up a copy of Orthodoxy. We're going to keep trucking through. Uh, next week we're going to look at Chapter Three: The Suicide of Thought. That looks like it's going to be very uh, fun and interesting to talk through. But uh, if you guys enjoyed the show, please subscribe, share it with your friends, and you can follow us on Instagram at Battle Preach Podcast. Make sure you leave a review for us. Thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>